0: What we kind of started with, the first sermon in 1 John, was about having like three buckets in life. You have freedom, you have community, and you have meaning. And for most of us in the West, it looks like this. Lots of freedom. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want. But our community bucket is a bit low. Our meaning bucket might even be a, little, a bit lower than that. And so we have all this freedom, but we don't, it's not really meaningful. It doesn't really mean much. So we can do whatever we want, but like, why? But what John is writing about is that all three of them will be full, which means a bit of a sacrifice of freedom in order for our buckets of community and meaning to be filled up. And that's what, the, the, that's what eternal life looks like. That's what the full life looks like. One where you have freedom, but you also have community, and you also have meaning, and these things are working together. Because if you just have one, or you're missing one, then you're really missing out on the full experience of what life is like. And what meaning is, is really just to get the most out of this life specifically in this last section here john writes about he's going to write about confidence safety and understanding we're going to look at those things in a moment and those are things we all want we all want confidence we all want safety we all want understanding i mean if anything i think these are some of the things that we search for when we chase after comfort comfort is massive and it's how we use our freedom mostly is to get comfort what do we want comfort to give us well surely we want to be confident because not being confident is uncomfortable or we want to have safety. Not being safe is very uncomfortable. We want to have understanding. If we don't know what we're doing or kind of what's going on, we don't ex- understand where we are, well, that's uncomfortable. The problem is, though, if we just seek comfort, we will sacrifice meaning if we go for comfort first. The most comfortable existence we can imagine, maybe it's like sipping a G&T in like a warm beach situation, a resort. You have someone fanning you, feeding you grapes or whatever. But that's not really meaningful. I mean, it's amazing. Who doesn't want to do that, right? That sounds great. But that's not really meaningful because how, how do we experience that? I don't have a care in the world. You don't have any cares. I mean, you don't really care about anything. I mean, it's great for a time, and, and you know, let's take advantage of those times if we can get them. But not having a care in the world means you don't really care. A life of meaning means you care very much. You're passionate about things. So you understand how those things could be opposed to each other. There's comfort and then there's meaning. They can be opposed to each other, but they don't have to be because it is possible To have the good parts of comfort, like confidence, safety, and understanding that we're going to talk about, as well as a life of meaning. And this is how John ends his letter. The thing is to not chase after comfort first, which is our default. And often, I mean, so many things are set up for us to be able to easily do that. But we can only really get comfort and meaning through being children of God. And this is what John loves to talk about. As far as themes of this letter, this is probably one of the biggest themes that John writes about in his letter. What What does it mean to be the children of God? And we've talked about what children of God mean a lot because it's come up a lot. And we don't have the comfort that we need. We don't have the meaning we crave, but Jesus gives us both. Only through what Jesus has done can we experience confidence, safety, and understanding as we are saved to a life of meaning. So we're going to look at those three, confidence, safety, and understanding. And then we're going to take a little bit deeper look at each. Um, so, first, let's start with confidence. This is how John starts in verses 13 and 14. He says, I write these things to you who believe, which is us, uh, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So, we have confidence to approach the most powerful being this world has ever seen or ever will see. You could be the most ardent Republican, but if the Queen has called you into some kind of official audience, you're going to be overwhelmed. I'm willing to bet you're not going to be as confident as you think you'd be. Like, oh, I'm going to tell the queen off. Like, you're probably not going to. I remember one time Christine and I were in Windsor, and there was, like, a practice run-through because they were receiving, like, the premier of some country. I can't remember, like, Kuwait or something. I don't even know. Um, but just the practice meant, like, marching bands and horses and, like, people with crazy hats, all sorts of pomp and circumstance going on. And that was just the practice run-through. And that's just our little United Kingdom. That's a small thing. You could be the most ardent atheist, but if the Pope called you in for a private audience, you'd still be in awe, and that's just a little old Catholic church. The Queen, the Pope, neither of those (laughs) come close to the grandeur or the majesty or the overwhelming power of God himself. So how could we expect ourselves to be composed before this kind of God, let alone confident? Wouldn't we just, like, lose it? The one who created this earth, the one who's in charge of everything, where every single atom that exists, has come into existence because of him, the one who not only created those atoms but holds them all together through him, who in making the stars, the way the Psalms describe God making the stars are flicks of his finger. That's how he makes stars. And have we ever contemplated how big the universe is? That's crazy. And there's a God who has made that thing, which therefore means he's bigger than that? And we can have confidence before that God? Well, John tells us what this confidence looks like. First, it's for us. Because if we ask for something... He hears us. God will actually hear us. and it doesn't say if we ask in a certain way, or it doesn't say if we're really good, then ask. It just says if we ask. According, of course, the way that John writes about it at the end of verse 14, it says according to his will. So it's not like treating him like a spiritual vending machine. Like you put your pound in and you get the thing out. That's not how it works. It's not a transactional consumeristic kind of thing. It's better than that because we get to be in relationship with this God. We have the ear of God himself. If we have confidence before God, surely that makes all the other things that scare us look small and pitiful. And in this relationship with God, he gives us what we need. We're never left without. He always cares for us. So it's for us, but it's not just for ourselves because this is a confidence that can benefit others. If you look at verse 16, John is continuing about what it means to pray. And he says, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. So if we see people out of alignment with God's plan, who say they follow God, we can also talk to God on their behalf. It's not like we have, they have to do it themselves. And God will give them life. So being on God's path is life-giving for us. And when we stray, as we all do, yeah, it's a good sound, isn't it? Right there. <laughs> Trying to not move very much to get the suction sound going on. But being on God's path is life-giving for us. <clears throat> and when we stray, as we all do, There are negative consequences. So I need people who, when you're seeing me stray, are going to pray for me. You need people who, when seeing you stray, will pray for you. That means relationships are not a luxury. They're not optional. They're not an add-on to what we already have going on. They're a necessity. Relationships with each other, and when I mean relationships, I mean relationships where we can be close enough to each other that we can see when we mess up, we can see when we we sin, which is closer than just holding up a facade. That's a necessity for us. Otherwise, who's going to pray for us? If no one ever sees us mess up, how are people going to know how to pray? And being able to pray for each other means that we have a supernatural power for those that we love. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God, but God loves to use us through it. It's more than just trying to help. It's more than just being there for a person, and those things are great. It's talking to God about giving us the life that we need. That's something only God can do and something that we really need. So that means the church is more than an earthly community that cares. Hopefully it is an earthly community that cares, but it's more than that. It's a supernatural family where God's supernatural life comes down to earth and works through us. So when you see me a bit frayed and short with my words, like on a Sunday, please talk to me about it, but also pray for me. If when you're over our house I'm being grumpy to Christina or grumpy to Colin, like talk to me about it, Greg, you shouldn't have said that, or you should have said things in a nicer way. Also like pray for me. I need it. Just as you do. If you don't, who is going to pray for me? Part of my hope of being able to follow Jesus is you praying for me. And the same goes for the rest of us. And that's our role. I think sometimes it's easy for us to not understand really how desperately we need each other. You are each an integral part of God's church in Turlton. If we aren't working together in this way, then, then there's no hope. This is how God tells us to work. Now, there's something interesting and maybe a little bit like disturbing here that John gets to. Uh, he tells us in verse 16 that there are people to not pray for. Uh, he said, um, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to, le- to death, as in verse 16. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. So God, John is telling us that there are things not to pray for. Like, I think generally, in my default mode, is like Christians ought to pray about everything for everybody all the time. And in most, I mean, 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, that's correct, but John is telling us something... Uh, that we need to learn from maybe it offends kind of our our niceness so someone who's committing a sin that leads to death well doesn't like all sin lead to death is not kind of what we learn like all sin is, is death well not in the way that john is writing because he says all wrongdoing is sin but there is a sin that leads to death so there's some kind of level of sin that's different compared to just like sin in general now i've tried to unravel this and this is what i found by doing a bit of research the commentaries have a bunch of ideas but i think this is what john is trying to tell us first um a child of god is in the light is in life uh the other path is darkness and death if over a period of time where someone is refusing that life we're not called to force them there might be a time where we would even cease praying for, for someone who deliberately over a long period of time is rejecting, rejecting, rejecting and, this, and I'm not talking about someone who like rejects it once or twice I'm saying like this is going to be like decades kind of resistance and deliberate resistance deliberate resistance to forgiveness that Jesus offers someone who already knows what Jesus offers and is deliberately resisting it so that's like lots of caveats there someone who already knows who, what Jesus is about what his church is about and, and who resists that um, John tells us to stop praying for that person there is a time because we're not going to be able to force them into the kingdom now, of course, it's a really long time, and there are all sorts of caveats, and we may never actually get to that point with people that we know. But I think what one thing, one takeaway from this is that what we do with our lives really matters. Like, there's a gravity to sin. I think our niceness and our kind of like laissez faire about all sorts of things, especially with Godness, means a sin like is bad, but it's really not that bad. But if we continue and habitually do it, and, and continue to refuse Jesus' forgiveness for a long period of time. John is saying don't pray for that person. Other places in the Bible it says don't even hang out with somebody like that. Don't even eat food with somebody like that. Now that's not someone someone who is not a Christian. That's not someone who is like seeking God but doesn't know anything about it. That's someone who knows about who God is and is deliberately refusing them over a long period of time. So there's a gravity of the situation that we face. And that doesn't mean that God stops working. Thankfully God doesn't depend on us merely to do stuff for him to work. God is going to work in that person's life as he works in everybody's life. But there is a point where John tells us to refrain. There's a gravity that comes here. It's a gravity for all of us to make sure that we are continually accepting the forgiveness that we get through Jesus. But if you are a child of God, and you should know that you have a confidence here. You're not on the out, you're on the in. You have this confidence before God himself, for yourself and for others. That's a bit about confidence. Let's talk a little bit about safety, what that looks like. In verse 18, John says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. So if you're born of God, you don't sin, right? Wait, that doesn't make any sense, because we do. We sin all the time. But John also writes in his own letter in the very first chapter, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what does that mean here? Well, what John's talking about is our identity. Are our lives primarily characterized as living in sin, or are they primarily characterized as living in God's way? If we live in him, we still sin, but there's a forgiveness, and it's not who we are. It's the question of identity. And the question of identity connects to safety in this way. Basically, who do we depend on to keep us safe? That's what faith is. Who or what do we have faith in? Only God's children are kept safe because they're on God's path. They have the presence of God in their lives. or walking in the ways that God has designed. And God will always keep us safe. If we're relying on something else to keep us safe, that's sin. And there's not a guarantee if we aren't following God that we will be kept safe. In fact, it's a promise that eventually, ultimately, we won't be kept safe outside of God's presence. Because only God can truly care about our safety. So everything out there promises to keep us safe. But everything out there either can't do it or is lying about it nothing else can keep us safe the way that God can. I mean, one thing I think we probably all depend on to keep us safe is our paycheck, or our job, or whatever. As long as that thing comes, we don't really need to rely on God because we know we're going to eat, we're going to be fine, we have a bed, there might be mice in our house, but at least we can sleep on it. Relying on God can feel optional if you're relying on your paycheck. Or it can even feel like a luxury. Yeah, maybe if I feel like it today, I'll rely on God. But that paycheck doesn't care about you at all. It could change at any moment. And really, don't we want to be people who like, transcend the having to depend on a paycheck and have faith in a paycheck? Surely we want to be better people than that. And this is, uh, would be a good time to address the strange way that John, John's letter ends here. Verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. A really weird ending, right? Right at the end. He's not like, all right, bye, I'm John. I'll see you in a bit. Uh, it's just not we get we don't get that many people think this wasn't the original ending that john wrote which would make a lot of sense it was probably cut off in some way and we may never know for sure if that's true because we don't have evidence either way but we can be sure that god has preserved for us what he wants us to know if he is the true god and he gives out eternal life surely we can trust whether he's going to preserve his own word to us if he wants to and i think verse 21 fits really well with what we're talking about here about the safety thing about idols the apostle john starts off calling us dear children He's not like, you horrible little stepchildren that I kind of barely own. Keep yourself from idols. He's saying dear children, very close to his heart. And he pleads with us to keep ourselves from idols. He's talking to us. We are the dear children. Idols are anything that's not God that we treat like God. They can be good things like families and relationships and friends and jobs. And they, or they can be bad things like greed and self-centeredness and addictions John wants us to live in the life that God has for us, and that's impossible if we rely on anything else but him. We miss out on that meaning that we really crave in our lives. So only God gives us the safety we need now in the moment. I mean, have you ever come across a situation where you felt unsafe? Maybe there are parts of your life now where you don't feel safe. Know that for those who believe in the Son of God, like in verse 13, those who rely on Jesus, we are kept safe. Bad things might happen to us. Bad things will happen to us. But regardless of what may come, God is telling us today, I promise to protect you. You have the truthful word of the most powerful being telling you that he will keep you safe. So we have safety and we also have understanding. Now there are all types of understanding. What is John talking about here? Let's look at verse 20. It says, we know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true to un- so it's an understanding to know the one who is true to know jesus so jesus has come into the world so that we might know him that's the understanding that john's talking about here and that's really important because we all have spiritual longings and many of us don't under- by ourselves we don't understand where to put those things and that's really important <laughs> i mean take a brief look around Trilton, you find people have all sorts of spiritual longings and we try and meet them in all sorts of ways we feel like they can be met through meditation centers or, or through yoga classes or eating certain things or not eating certain things or even going to the pub. These are how we are trying to direct our longings for something greater in this world. If anything, the diverse offerings of all the spiritual fulfillment centers that we have around Charlton shows that we don't understand what to do with these feelings. We kind of spread it all over the place. Instead of just leaving ourselves to figure it out, Jesus gives us the gift of understanding how to direct those spiritual longings Our problem mostly is like shooting too low at being satisfied with too little. A sandwich uh, uh, approaching the expiry date of Tesco's could be fine. It might work. It may not work. You will find out eventually. But it could be fine in the moment. But if you're offered like a gorgeous Sunday roast instead, why would you choose that possibly bad Tesco sandwich? But this is what we do and we're left to our own to figure out because we can't understand these things. We're just grabbing the Tesco sandwiches thinking that's good and then we pay for it later. So understanding is the gift of knowing where to direct our longing, where we find its fulfillment. It's Jesus, and it's so much better than a Sunday roast. As amazing as that's gonna be, Christina has a brisket growing, going at home. It's gonna be beautiful. Everyone should come over and eat it. But even better than that, it's Jesus. He's, he's the true God. He is eternal life. And if you're born of God, this is what eternal life looks, for us, looks like for us now. We have confidence, we have safety, and we have understanding is what we have, it would be ridiculous to have it and not know it, to, to not act like it. But that's exactly what John talks about in the beginning here in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, right, good, so you may know that you have eternal life. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. But John's writing so that we might know that we have it, so we can have it and not know it. So what does it look like to have it and not know it? Well, for confidence, what does it look like to have confidence and not know that we have it? Well, to have access to the king and not know it or not take advantage of it. It's like having a bank account with as many zeros as you can count, yet still living like someone barely able to get by. You scrape a few quid together for dinner, but you're actually rich. And why would anyone choose to live like that? Well, that's what we do all the time, and we don't take advantage of the confidence that we have before God. Who can possibly disturb the king for our little needs and our little wants? A king's daughter can. A king's son can. They bother the king all the time in the middle of the night, even for something as small as a glass of water. And that's what we have, being the children of God. Why would we ever forsake that privilege? What about safety? What, about, what does it mean to have safety but to not know it? Well, if you, uh, if you keep bees, I don't know if anyone knows and done any beekeeping. I, oh, right. Oh, that's right. you did done loads of beekeeping. You might know the answer to this. What is the name of the suit that you put on? Is it just called a beekeeper suit? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Oh, Okay, so say you're decked out in a complete beekeeper's suit and you have this hive that you're going to tend to, you're going to get the honey or the things you do with bees, Um, but you're there in the kitchen and you're too afraid to go out. You're wearing all the protective clothing, the hat, the gloves, everything. It's like a hazmat suit that bees can't get through or whatever, but you're just there in your kitchen. You're protected and you're safe, but you're scared. As long as you stay in that protected and scared state, you're not going to be able to tend to the bees. You're not going to be able to take advantage of having bees. You're just going to sit there, probably like, if it's a day like today, sweating in your kitchen by yourself, protected and scared. You'll never venture out of your comfort zone. So to have safety and to not know it is to miss out on life. What about understanding? What understanding doesn't look like? Well, my first experience here at Grace Church in Manchester I was at what they called community groups then, and someone asked me if I wanted water or squash. Now, in America, squash is a vegetable. It's nothing else. And so I was like, water or squash? And I had like what I thought was like two seconds of thinking about it in my head. It probably came out like 10 seconds long of an answer. I was like, I don't want a vegetable, but I could use water. So I'll just say water? I didn't know the squash is like a drink. I was, so I just, I just got water. Well, learning that, other things that we learned immediately. Learning at the response of interesting doesn't always mean interesting often it means i completely disagree and do not find this interesting (laughs) unlearning to to look for visual cues when trying to navigate a friendship as for an american we smile when we're happy or we frown when we're angry like we or we move our hands a whole lot that doesn't happen as much in england Uh, to be more okay with living in ambiguity does this person like me hate me find me boring find me exciting i don't know i can't tell Humbly becoming a little, kid, a little kid again, counting out coins in your hands to give to the bus driver as you hold up the queue behind you, and it's raining and pouring, and those people are super angry at you, and you're all you're just like, I think this is enough. Is it this many? For anyone who's lived in America, even if it's cities, you know that life in general is kind of orientated around more comfort, more convenience. And when we moved here, Christina, she left her career. She had to learn how to be a mom. She had no friends or family nearby, navigating a new culture. This is what it's like to not have an earthly understanding. It was exhausting. We were tired every night at like 8 o'clock. We were super tired all the time because we are having, having to think of all these things that we didn't have to think about before. But even more exhausting is having a spiritual longing for something and never being satisfied. Earthly, we can get by. We might not be tired a little bit. But having, that spiritual, uh, having a lack of spiritual understanding, having that longing without it being fulfilled, that truly is exhausting. And remember, John here is writing to the church so the question for us is where do we try and find our spiritual longings outside of jesus we have this understanding where do we neglect it the answer will probably be in your diary and your bank account how do you spend your time how do you spend your money do you plan time to read the bible and pray if you don't plan for the time it probably isn't going to happen if you don't plan it why would you expect to do it what about time devoted to your missional community or to your core group or to sundays are they just luxuries are they just cherries on top of things that you think you could do if you feel like it or not (laughs) but if something comes up that's better, maybe you won't do it? Do you ever, do you feel like your spiritual longings are actually being satisfied in Jesus, or are you just finding them to be easily fulfilled in these Tesco sandwiches that are offered all the time? Augustine had this, who lived around 400 AD, has this great quote, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And it's true, we will be completely restless, searching for those spiritual longings to be fulfilled in every kind of area until we actually find it in Jesus. So a confident child of God, being kept from harm by God himself, understanding where to direct our strongest longings, doesn't look like something very radical on the outside. It looks like something very normal, very typical on the outside. This person might have a job, might be a student, might be a stay-at-home parent. They don't have it all together, but they also aren't put off by not having it all together because they rely on Jesus for their confidence. They don't have the easiest life. Bad stuff happens to them just as everyone else, but they can endure through it because they rely on Jesus for safety. They spend time doing things others don't. They're in the word, they're praying to the Father, praying for themselves, for others. They're part of others' relationships in the church, so they actually know how to pray for these other people that they pray for. They don't always do this well as they'd like to, but they aren't put off by it because they know that Jesus is still at work in them and they rely on Jesus to continue it. Being a child of God gives you this life of confidence, of safety, and understanding. It's a satisfying life, though we're gonna go through unsatisfying times all the time. There's contentment here, but it's more than just relaxing. It's a meaningful contentment. And who doesn't want that? I mean, we all want to be like that kind of person. And probably all of us recognize, yeah, there's definitely parts of my life where I'm not like that. Well, how do we get there? What do we have to do? I bet all of us would pay a lot of money to ensure confidence, safety, and understanding. And surely we already do in different parts of our lives. So what do we do? How do we become a child of God? Well, the answer is in the beginning and the ending of this section that John writes. In verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. To believe, to trust, to rely, to depend. We, what are we believing in? The Son of God is the risen Son of God, the resurrection, resurrected Son of God who works His power through us, even now as we're sitting here. And in verse 20, it says, We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. So we are in Him. Not through what we've done, thank God. It's not dependent on what we get to do. It's through what He's already done on our behalf, and that's what the glorious thing about Easter, getting to celebrate that together, is all about. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, now we can become children of God. We get access to all these things. It has happened. Because he gave up his life, his access to God, his safety, we get eternal life. And now, today, that means confidence, safety, and understanding. Jesus was put to death so that we might, he might put us to life. And there was a massive cost, his own life. The only cost to us is to live in his way. Insofar as we rely on him, we will understand how we can truly take advantage of that confidence, that safety and understanding, of where to place our spiritual longings. And this is how we can have a life of meaning. Jesus bought it with a price. And that's what this table gets to signify. The night before Jesus was killed, he had a dinner party with his closest friends. He told them he was going to die. And when they gathered together, that they should do this often to remember what he's done for them. The next day, Jesus was hung up on a cross, was publicly shamed and tortured to death, and he died. And with his death, he broke all the broken ways of this world. Then on Sunday, he resurrected himself. Death couldn't keep him down because Jesus even put death to death. And because he drank the cup of death, we get to drink from the cup of life, which was bought by Jesus' resurrection. And now his, the same power that rose him from the dead lives in us through what he's done. This symbolizes the meaning that we get in Jesus' life. We get confidence. We get safety. We get that understanding of knowing where to put our deepest longings. And all that meaning is is stuff that we crave for and we need is found in Jesus. And that's that's what this table symbolizes. It's a symbol of Christ's death for us, his resurrection power in us. So if you follow Jesus, this table is for you. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to be a part of Jesus's family, as we talked about. If you don't yet follow Jesus, don't do this, don't lie, by doing something with your body, that, with your heart, and with your mind you don't believe in yet. But it would be a good time to pray. What we're going to do is what we normally do. Michael's going to come up and sing some songs. You can take a piece of bread out, dip it in the juice or the wine, and eat it. And let's do it in the, uh, kind of the joy that should come with Easter. We're going to sing some really joyful Easter resurrection-related songs. And what a joyful thing that as our first Easter together as a church, we get to do this as a family, as God's family. Let me pray.